Canadian Broadcasting Corporation presents a play by Alan King, based on the trial of Hesse Gray, charged in 1895 with the murder of an elderly Ontario farmer. The play is part of the CBC series Famous Canadian Trials, produced in the Montreal studios of the CBC. The Trial of Hesse Gray. One thing we never expected was to see that dirty, good-for-nothing family of greys back in our part of Ontario. When they disappeared, Autonomy Township was well rid of them, and now here they were back again with the father and mother charged with murder. Of course, we were all in court to see the trial. On September 26, 1895, before the Honourable Chancellor Boyd, for the Crown R.C. Clute, Q.C., for the defence, W.A. Stratton. It was a year and a half since poor David Scully died in that terrible fire. Of course, his farm belonged to the Greys after that. They had made an arrangement with Mr. Scully that he would turn the farm over to them in exchange for their looking after him for the rest of his life. They didn't keep it long after the fire, sold it for a thousand dollars and went to Florida. Good riddance, we all said. Oh, the rumours that have flown about since then. Enough in them to make the government send their best detective after the Greys and bring them back. Mr John Wilson Murray, that was. And I know he had quite a time with them. I found them in a terrible condition of poverty and squalor. The children dirty and practically naked. Well, after I arrived with the extradition order, the sheriff of this town of Ocala, where they were, and his wife and some of the townsfolk, washed the children and made up a purse and bought them some clothes. Young Tommy Gray, aged 11, invested five cents of his money in some whole-day suckers called Red Davies Jawbones, one of which he kept in his mouth from morning till night. Well, I got them all in the train, and the moment it started, Mrs. Gray began to boo-hoo... The six little greys burst forth in a chorus of caterwauling, and Thomas Gray, the father, blubbered while young Tommy opened wide his cave of the winds and poured forth frantic howls. Of course, this was not pleasant for the other passengers, and uh, several men promptly left the car after glaring at me. Then a gentle old lady arose and crossed over to the seat of the wailing Tommy. Poor little Manny. The Manny, what's the matter? Can't you see I'm crying, you old fool? For answer, the sweet old lady suddenly reached down and seized the weeping Tommy, and despite his kicks and struggles, lifted him up, laid him across her knees, and spanked him soundly. To my utter astonishment and the amazement of the Greys, Tommy suddenly ceased his howling and looked up and smiled, at which they all stopped their howling and the old lady returned to her seat. And suddenly, Tommy started again. Oh! She broke me jawbones! She broke me jawbones! Oh! The old lady paled, then flushed, and at length she arose and came over to me. Sir, I, I trust you do not think I injured him. But I, I did not strike him on his face, so his jawbone is unhurt. I struck him not on the face, but, but on his... <coughs> Well, uh, on the appropriate place provided, therefore, sir. And it was, uh, it 
It was with my open hand. Oh, it's all right, ma'am. I, I can have his jaw set when I get him home. Oh. Oh, dear. The old lady gave me a most mystified look and went back to her seat. While Tommy produced some of the broken red Davy's jawbones from his pocket and sat there contentedly sucking one. <laughs> oh, never did I have such a cargo and such a trip. So now, here were Thomas and Hesse Gray with their seven dirty children in court, one only a baby in arms, and by her appearance with another on the way. The Crown were trying her first on the murder charge, and Mr. Clute began to tell the jury about the evidence they were going to hear. You will hear evidence, gentlemen of the jury, to the effect that after David Scully made the agreement with the Greys to turn his farm over to them after his death, uh, this was in 1892, in exchange for free board and lodging for the remainder of his life, the old gentleman improved in health and vigour. And you will hear evidence to the effect that this state of affairs displeased Mrs. Gray to the extent that she complained to the neighbours and even threatened David Scully's life. Aye, and dropped that flower pot on his head that we all heard about. Oh, I know, she said it was an accident. But Mr. Scully said she wasn't sorry about it and even said to him, When the hell are you going to die? That woman hadn't a trace of human feeling in her body. You will also hear evidence, gentlemen of the jury, that David Scully consulted with his neighbours and, on their advice, offered to buy his farm back from the Greys, but withdrew his offer when Thomas Gray asked for $1,300. After this, relations were very strained between Scully and Mr. and Mrs. Gray. That's putting it mildly. Well, Mr. Clute went on outlining the case against Mrs. Gray and then he called his witnesses. Zacchaeus Burnham was at the fire quite early on. It was James McGregor who came and wakened me and my son. Uh, what time was that, Mr. Burnham? Oh, about two in the morning. I was over at the Scully farm within seven or eight minutes. And what was the situation then? Well, the roof hadn't fallen in yet. Uh, you're speaking now of the main house. Yes. The whole east end of it was burned out, but not the west. I asked about Mr. Scully, but someone said he was in the house. I wanted to help to get him out, but the fire was so hot we couldn't get near the house. Uh, you did not see Mr. Scully's body that night? No, sir, but I went back to the farm in the morning. Uh, did you see it then? Yes. Mr. John Weir had come over by that time, and we both looked for the body. I pointed out to him where I thought the body would probably be, and we dug a trench around the spot. Uh, where was this spot? Underneath the old gentleman's bedroom. But in our digging, we went through to the cellar. We didn't know there was a cellar until that time. And did you find the body where you expected? No, sir. It was in a corner of the cellar, lying on a straw mattress, covered with a blanket and a layer of lath and plaster. Will you tell his lordship and the jury what condition the body was in when you found it? The bedclothes were tucked in around it and... Underneath them, his arms were folded across his chest. One foot was burned off the body at the instep, and the head was missing. Apart from the fact that the head was missing, did you notice anything unusual about the body? Well, 
The hair on the chest was not burned until about three inches to where the head was cut off from the neck. Did you search for the head? Yes, we looked all through the ruins for it, but there wasn't a trace of it. Ah, that was terrible about the head. The poor man. I'll never believe it was burned off by the fire. After Mr. Burnham, Mr. Clute had John Weir in the witness box, the man who helped Mr. Burnham look for the body. He gave about the same evidence, but Mr. Stratton was very severe on him in the cross-examination. Mr. Weir, I believe you accompanied Mr. Murray, the detective, on his investigations into this case. Yes, I did. You went with him when he questioned Mrs. McGregor, Mrs. Gray's sister. Yes. I suggest to you, Mr. Weir, that in accompanying Detective Murray, you were indulging in a personal revenge by hounding down Mrs. Gray. No, sir, that is not true. You were not on friendly terms with the Grays, were you? Well, uh... Answer my question. Well, we were not particular friends, no. Is it not true that Thomas Gray accused you of getting in all the timber for a new barn on your farm and then burning the old one for the insurance? No, sir, that is not true. There was no quarrel over that? No. Nope. Mr. Weir, when you and Mr. Burnham were searching through the ruins of the fire for the head, were you yourself searching for anything else as well? I don't know what you mean. I mean... Were you searching for David Scully's money box? No, sir, I was not. But is it not true that at some time before David Scully's death, you had given him a note, after which you were accused of forgery for having changed the figures on it? I was never accused of forgery. And you were not poking about in the ruins trying to find Scully's money box? No. I believe that you have a sister, Mr. Weir. Or rather, had a sister who was murdered. That is true. Now, I suggest to you that as a result of that unfortunate happening, you have, ever since, been a monomaniac on the murder question. No, no, that is now not so. One more so. question, Mr. Weir. You are acquainted with Mr. Lavelle of this neighborhood? Yes, I know Mr. Lavelle. Did you at any time say to Mr. Lavelle that when David Scully made a contract with the Greys, he put a nail in his coffin? No, I never said that to Mr. Lavelle. You never said that at any time? Never. Thank you, that will be all. Oh, that John Weir. He'd deny his own name if it suited him. As far as saying that David Scully put a nail in his own coffin, I've no doubt he thought it, at least. And so did I. The old man was so healthy and strong, the Greys thought they would never get the farm. Soon after John Weir, Mr. Clute called Dr. Caven to describe the body when he saw it. Oh, it was horrible. I didn't see the body until it was exhumed on uh, June the 1st, 1895, uh, 16 months after the fire. Will you describe its condition, Dr. Caven? Uh, when I saw it, uh, it was still clothed in two shirts, uh, drawers and socks. The shirts showed evidence of fire around the neck. Uh, the head was missing. The chest was covered with thick hair, which was untouched by the fire. The collarbones and neck vertebrae were destroyed. The left shoulder blade was missing. The right shoulder badly burned. The upper parts of both arms were badly burned. All the ribs on the left side were burned, but not on the right side. Will you look at exhibits five to eight and tell us what they are? Uh, these are the neck vertebrae from the body. Uh, what can you tell us about their condition? Well, as you'll see, the back part of them is comparatively intact while the front part is destroyed. 
In your opinion, Doctor, could this condition have been produced if the head had been attached to these vertebrae? No, the head must have been severed before this condition was produced. Have you been able to come to any conclusion as to whether or not David Scully was alive when the fire reached him? Uh, it's only an opinion, of course, but I can't conceive of the deceased being alive when the fire reached him, as the hands were calmly crossed, whereas if he had suffered, there would be evidence of a struggle. It was awful to listen to the doctor calmly describing all these horrible things. And it was about as bad when Mr. Stratton cross-examined him. Did you find any traces of blood on the underclothes of the deceased? No, I did not. Or on his shirt? No. Did you, in fact, discover any signs of violence? No, I did not. Although there was evidence of fracture of the neck bones. But that could be caused, perhaps, by, a, well, a falling beam or something of that nature. It could, yes. Is it not true that a three-inch nail was found penetrating the chest? Yes, I assumed it had been driven in by some falling debris. Do you consider it possible, Doctor, that the heat of the fire could have consumed the head? It is possible. Assuming the heat was very intense, of course. Yeah. You've mentioned that the body was, in your opinion, peacefully arranged. I would like you to tell his lordship and the jury if you can conceive of any way in which the deceased could have come to a peaceful death in the midst of these terrible conditions. Well, it could happen, of course. By the deceased having inhaled carbolic acid gas, perhaps. Yes, that's what I had in mind. And where would that carbolic acid gas come from? Oh, it's often given off by burning wood. There might well be enough given off in a fire of this nature to cause unconsciousness and even death. Thank you, Dr. Caven. That will be all. After Dr. Caven came Dr. Primrose. But he ought to have been called by the defense because he said nobody could have cut off the old man's head without spilling a great deal of blood. Oh. After that came the McGregors. First him and then her. She was Mrs. Gray's sister. He said that when he got to the fire, he got there too late to do anything about saving Scully. And then he talked about Mrs. Gray and the threats she used to make. I'll poison the old brute, she said, and more than once. And I believe him. Mrs. McGregor, of course, didn't want to give evidence against her sister, but she had to. I understand your reluctance, Mrs. McGregor, but we must have the truth. It is true, is it not, that you have had several conversations about David Scully with your sister, Mrs. Gray? Yes, I did. Can you remember when the last conversation took place? It was... Oh, now let me see. I think it was the second Saturday in November. That was the November before the fire. Can you remember what was said on that occasion? Well, Hesse, that's my sister. Hesse said something about having a sort of a quarrel with the old fellow. You mean the deceased, David Scully? That's right. And she made a sort of a threat. Just what did she say, Mrs. McGregor? Well, it was about what she might want to do. I'm afraid I must ask you to give us the exact words, as far as you remember them, Mrs. McGregor. Well, she said, if something isn't done with the old devil, he's likely to live as long as me. And what did you say to that? I said, I suppose, Hesse, that will be as long as God lets him. Go on. And... Well, then my sister said, No, I'll be damned if he will. I won't let him. Of course, I was shocked. And I asked my sister what she meant. And she said, I mean that I shall watch my chance some dark night and shoot him. And what did you say to that? Well, I warned her. 
I said that murder could never be hidden and that she would be found out. And what did your sister say then? Well, she... Oh, now I don't want to... I'm afraid you must tell us, Mrs. McGregor. Well, she got very excited and she said, I tell you, this is the last winter Scully will ever see. I'll chop off his head and burn the house down rather than be bothered with him another winter. And how the hell would it be known then? Well, of course, everybody in Otonabee Township had heard that story before Mrs. McGregor told it in court, and people took sides about it. There were those who didn't believe Mrs. Gray ever said anything of the sort. They said that the McGregors hated the Grays and would do anything to hurt them, even though the women were sisters. And then there were those who believed Mrs. Gray capable of saying just what she did say and of doing it, too. I myself am quite certain that... But I'll no say any more about that. At any rate, Mrs. McGregor hadn't much more to say about her sister except what Mr. Stratton got out of her when he cross-examined her. So you admit to you, Mrs. McGregor, that there was bad feeling between you and your husband and the Grays? Well, yes, but it was... There was bad feeling, wasn't there? Yes, but I would have gone and been friends with my sister if my husband had allowed yeah, me. Uh, well, that will be all, Mrs. McGregor. And that was all there was for that day. The next morning, we all got a surprise when Mr. Clute announced that he would not call any more witnesses. Mrs. Gray looked sort of pleased about the whole thing. A small woman she was, bright as a new sixpence, and keen as a razor, and sharp-tongued, too, sitting there in the dock holding her baby in her arms, to impress the jury, no doubt. Mr. Stratton said he was ready to address the jury, but that he would only speak for a few minutes. I will just say that the defense will consist of a complete denial that Mrs. Gray did any harm to the deceased David Scully. The defense contends that Scully died in the fire. The only strange circumstance being that his body was found in the cellar rather than in his own bedroom and that the cellar was in the opposite corner from that part of the house where Scully usually slept. But the defense contends that this fact is not enough to justify the malicious gossip that unfriendly neighbors have put about concerning Mrs. Gray. You are asked to come to your decision on the facts, gentlemen, not on gossip. Now I am prepared to show conclusively how the members of the Gray family spent the evening and night of that fatal February 22nd, and I contend that this will show that they must be held totally innocent of Mr. Scully's death. Well, he started off with that William Leahy, who'd talk the four legs off a mule, and all he said was that when he saw the body, he never thought of foul play, and that was all a waste of the court's time. After Lee came the first of the grey children, Annie, aged 13. Thank the good Lord, somebody had given her a wash. They were all the dirtiest children I ever saw. That detective, Mr. Murray, said that when he was bringing them back from Florida, it was awful when he got the whole family into a railway car in the heat. He could hardly bear the stink of them. Of course, Annie had her story perfectly rehearsed. I went to bed between 10 and 11 o'clock that night. And where was Mr. Scully at that time? He was sitting by the kitchen stove with a baby in his arms. That was the previous baby. The one her mother has in her arms now was born after that. Will you tell the court, Annie, how many stoves there were in the house? Two, sir. The one in the kitchen and another one in the bedroom. Which bedroom do you mean? Our bedroom. 
Mr. Scully slept in another room, upstairs. Would he sometimes go to bed earlier than you? Oh, yes. I've often seen him reading in bed. He had an oil lamp beside his bed. When did you first realize that there was a fire, Annie? When I smelled the smoke. Everybody else was asleep. What did you do? I called my mother. Your mother? Not your father? Well, I couldn't do that, sir. He was away visiting at Maydock. I see. So you awoke your mother? Yes, sir. What did she do? Well, she got up and lit a lamp, but then she fell over a broom handle and knocked the lamp over and it went out. <laughs> and uh, then what did she do? She looked around for my father's axe, and when she found it, she broke a window and we all got out, me and her and all the other children. We hardly had any clothes on. It was very cold that night. What did you do about Mr. Scully? Well, we just remembered about him when we got out, so we all called out for him, but he didn't answer. And after that? Well, there was nothing to do then. My mother said she was going to try and go back into the house and look for Mr. Scully, and we were all to go up to my Uncle James McGregor's. And that's where we went. Very well, Annie. That will be all. Oh, butter wouldn't have melted in her mouth. I will say for her she faced right up to Mr. Clute when he cross-examined her. Now, Annie, you say that you went to bed before your mother did. Is that right? Yes, sir. So that if she went out to the barn before going to bed, you wouldn't have known anything about it. I didn't know she went out there. You say that after you woke your mother up, she found an axe and broke open the window. Yes, sir. Why did you not try to get out through the kitchen door? We couldn't get into the kitchen. When we opened the door to it, the flames came through and we had to shut it and run back. Then we went out by the window. I see. And when you did get out, why did you go to the McGregor's who lived some distance away instead of to Mr. Burnham's who was the nearest neighbor to you? Because Mr. Burnham was a rich man and we were ashamed because we had not much on. Very well, that will be all. Aye, and Mr. Burnham could have seen the dirt on them. Not that that would cause those children a moment's worry. Oh, they could speak up for themselves, they could. Especially young Tommy Gray, who was next after his sister. How old are you, Tommy? Eleven, sir. Can you remember the night of the fire, Tommy? Oh, yes, sir. What happened that night? Did you go to bed when your sister Annie did? No, sir. I had to help my mother with the chores because my father was away at Madoff. I see. And when was this? Right after Annie went to bed. My mother told me to come out to the barn with her and I went. And we did the chores and then we came back to the house. Was Mr. Scully still in the kitchen? Oh, yes, sir. He was still there. After we came back, he said he was going up to bed and he went. And then my mother and me, we went too. Which bedroom did you sleep in? Same one as Annie. Us children, we all slept in the same bedroom with my mother. I see. So the last you saw of Mr. Scully was when he went up to bed, before you and your mother did. Yes, sir. And you and she went together. Yes, sir. Very well, Tommy. That will be all. Now, Tommy, I want to be sure about everything you remember. Yes, sir. Now, when you and your mother went to bed, you uh, or she uh, turned out the lights in the kitchen? Oh, yes, sir. And the fire in the stove was banked for the night? Yes, sir. And when you got to the bedroom, did your mother go to bed right away? Yes, sir. Or did she go out of the room for any reason? No, sir. She never went out of the bedroom at all. And that's all Mr. Clute could get out of young Master Tommy. He went down from the witness box looking very pleased with himself. And then a very strange thing happened. The judge hadn't said much all along, but he had something to say now. Mr. Stratton, have you many more witnesses that you intend to call? Yes, Rod, about seven or eight. Well, I really don't see the necessity of taking up any more time. When the Crown closed its case, it seemed to me that the jury could not convict without presuming a great deal against the prisoner. 
But now the Crown's case has been convincingly refuted by the defence witnesses that you have called so far, who appear to me to be telling the truth. Their story shows that Scully was alive at bedtime and that he went upstairs as usual, while Mrs. Gray went to bed downstairs. The Crown has failed to bring Scully and Mrs. Gray together after that hour. This is certainly a case that called for investigation, but it is not the Crown's duty to press on Julie for a conviction. The body was found without a head, and various foolish or wicked expressions of greed were expressed by the prisoner. But there were no marks of violence or struggle, no sign of blood on Scully's body. Furthermore, Mrs. Gray was confined within two months of the date of the fire, and it does not seem that in her condition of advanced pregnancy, she could have done the violent deed suggested by the prosecution without leaving any traces behind. Certainly, the prisoner's action in sending her children after the fire, not to the Burnhams, but to her sister's house, one and a half miles away to give the alarm, sounds strange. But there is nothing definitely deducible from that fact alone. I therefore direct the jury to return a verdict of not guilty, and I order this verdict to be so recorded. Well, I can tell you I was pretty surprised when that happened. After all the threats Mrs. Gray had made to be let off like that. And you should have seen her when they let her go, smiling away at everyone in the court. As for her husband, that good for nothing, they didn't even go on with the charge against him. He was 40 miles away on the night of the fire. So if they couldn't convict her, they certainly could never make a case against him. Oh, I suppose I should be fair and say that the judge was quite right. It was a poor case the Crown made. And if a person is acquitted by a jury, well, it's the Christian thing to say no more about it. Mind you, I wouldn't go as far as some people, the way they were written up by the reporter in the Globe. The general's sympathy in this vicinity with the Greys is likely to take a tangible form. And already steps are afoot to get up a subscription to set them on their feet again. Many of Peterborough's leading citizens are interesting themselves in the matter, as there is a strong feeling abroad that the couple has been very hardly used. Aye. Well, that's as maybe. For myself, I couldn't help thinking of that poor old man, David Scully, who never hurt anybody being burned like that and having his head cut off. They didn't get a subscription out of me, and I'm just as glad, because when the Greys got the money, they just disappeared. Nobody knows what happened to them or the children. Any more than anybody knows just exactly what did happen on that terrible night in February. The Trial of Hesse Gray was produced in Montreal by Rupert Kaplan, as part of the CBC series Famous Canadian Trials. The script was written by Len Peterson, and leading roles were played by Eleanor Stewart, Henry Raymer, Eileen Clifford, Albert Miller, Percy Rodriguez, Powis Thomas, Martha Henry, Gerald Rowan, Philip Nielsen, Margaret Cunningham, John Codner, Howard Rishpan, and Kay Trombley. The program was presented by this station through the facilities of the International Service of the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation.